Well, there's nothing worse than an unfinished story. Imagine ending the story of Cinderella right after midnight, after the carriage turns back into a pumpkin. After the carriage turns back into a pumpkin. That's the way it goes. I couldn't remember. (laughs) It's been a while since I've read that one. But imagine ending that story right there. Imagine ending the story of David and Goliath right after David goes into the field to the brook and picks up a few stones. Done. Right there. Or imagine if you had the story of Charlotte's Web, and in that story, Wilbur finds out that he's going to be bacon by Thanksgiving, (laughs) and then the story abruptly comes to an end at that point. There's a certain progression to a good story where the tension climaxes, and then it resolves itself. And when you read a story, no matter what it is, you come to expect that resolution, the tension building and then the resolution. You look for a good story to end in a certain way. And in the Old Testament, we have a story about humanity in general and the nation of Israel in particular. And at the end of the Old Testament, if you're reading carefully, at the end of the Old Testament, the people of Israel had returned to their land after exile, and they're in the land, but... Sin is still very prevalent among the people, and the glory of God had not returned to the temple where God was dwelling with his people. It wasn't the same as it had been when Solomon built the temple and the glory of the Lord came on the temple in light and and fog and smoke and everything else. It just wasn't like that. God's God's presence wasn't manifest with the people of Israel as it had been in the days of of David and in the days of Solomon. And so reading the Old Testament story is a little like being left in the middle of a story. You get to the end and there's this tension, there's this expectation that has been built and it's not yet resolved. The Old Testament leaves us with the tension of God making all of these promises, and yet many of those promises have not been fulfilled. And God's people, Israel, are still engaged in sin, and they're not walking with him as faithfully as they should be. And so it's with that tension that you open to the pages of the New Testament and to the Gospel of Mark in particular And you open there and look at what we read. If you're not there yet, you can open to Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning, Mark 1. And look what we read here. In or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know what gospel means? It means good news. And this is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what's interesting about this is, and we don't often think about, is that Mark tells us he has news. The gospel is a proclamation of an event, a series of events that has happened. It is news. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not telling us, you need to do something. Here's what you're required to do. The gospel is news of a story. It's an announcement of something that definitively took place at a moment in history, and you either believe the news or you don't believe the news. That's how it works. And whether you believe that news or not, your life will dramatically alter based on your response to the news that you have received. 
And this story, this news that Mark will tell is the climax of the Old Testament story. This is where the story reaches its pinnacle, its climax, and its resolution. One author described the gospel. He defined the gospel in the book of Mark in in this way. It is not a collection of abstract doctrines about Jesus and salvation that he dreamed up, but an account of the significant events in the life of Jesus that fulfilled the scriptures. That is, they brought the story of Israel to completion and unleashed salvation. We call that fulfillment. That's what this gospel is about. And that's the main word that we want to convey this morning as we open this new series in the first chapter of Mark. We're calling this series Gospel Basics. I'm sure you could see on the sign out there or even on the screen. But this this series is going to take us through Mark chapter 1. And each week that we're in Mark 1, you're going to find one main word that sort of summarizes an element of the gospel. And some of these words, when you think gospel, you don't automatically think fulfillment. But Mark wants us to understand when you talk about the gospel, you have to talk about the gospel story as the fulfillment of what has happened in the Old Testament. And so fulfillment is our, is our word for this week. And so if we're going to talk about a summary statement of what we're going to get to in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, here's our summary statement. Two messages that introduce the good news of God's fulfillment of his promises. So two messages that introduce the good news of God's fulfillment of his promises. And here's the first one of these. God is returning. Verses 2 and 3 in Mark chapter 1. So Mark begins the story you saw. This is kind of a title for the whole book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But interestingly enough, when he says the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. You would think that's where this story begins. But that's not where he goes. Instead, he goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet... And then he gives us a couple of quotes there from the Old Testament. Now, you should be able to see, I hope in your Bible, you can tell those are Old Testament quotes. Obviously, he says, Isaiah spoke these things, but you should be able to see it's set apart in your Bible. These are Old Testament quotes. And most of you have cross-references in your Bible, and maybe you're used to looking at those cross-references. But the New Testament writers didn't have cross-references all the time in their margins, And so what they would tend to do is they would sort of smash all of these quotes together. And sometimes they wouldn't notify you (laughs) that that's what they're doing. And so you sort of have to know your Old Testament to know where they're quoting from and what they're getting at. And so if you were to look in your cross-references in your Bible, my guess is it would tell you that the first part of this quote is actually not from Isaiah. It's from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, it doesn't mean Mark's wrong and he doesn't know where this comes from. Isaiah is the bigger book, and so he just gives Isaiah kind of the credit for the quote here. But this quote is really, besides Malachi and Isaiah, it's really a mixture of Old Testament quotes. But the two main ones are Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And so what I want to do just for a second this morning is I want to try to explain both of these quotes in their context and then pull them back together and show you why Mark is 
is using these quotes here. Okay, so let's read them in their New Testament context first, and then we'll go back to Isaiah 40. As it is written, verse 2, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, the second part of that, verse 3, is from Isaiah 40. So go ahead and flip back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. You're probably pretty familiar with this passage. It's well known. But Isaiah chapter 40 is where I want you to go. And when you have a New Testament author quoting an Old Testament passage, you always want to go and read more than just the verse that he quotes. Because he's getting at a whole series of, of themes and ideas that he wants you to understand. And a lot of times the verses around the verse he quotes are very, very helpful to our understanding. So Isaiah chapter 40, you can see verse 3 here. This is the verse that he quotes. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah chapter 40, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, this is kind of a pivotal point in the book of Isaiah. It's the beginning of the last portion of the book where God is telling Israel, look, you have been sinful, you've been dreadful in your relationship with me, but you're my covenant people, and I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring comfort to you. I'm going to do good to you as my people. Look up in verses verses 1 and 2 there. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So God's telling them here, listen, I'm, I'm not going to punish you anymore. In fact, I'm, at some point in the future, I'm going to do good to you. As my people. And when is that point in the future? Well, verse 3 gives us what's going to happen when God begins to do good to his people. This is what's going to happen. Verse 3 a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then keep reading. Look at this. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then look at this. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Flip down to verse 9 of this chapter. Same context, same promise of comfort, and look what Isaiah says is going to happen. Verse 9, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of what? Good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Mark is pulling all of that into this quote that he gives here, and he's saying, look, when this messenger comes, this is the beginning of God showing up to his people. And he's promising that when God shows up to his people, there's going to be comfort 
There's, it's good news for his people. That's why Christ's coming is good news. It's going to be restoration and comfort for the nation of Israel. So, Mark quotes from Isaiah, but he also quotes from the book of Malachi. So, if you can find it, flip over to Malachi chapter 3, just a few pages before Mark. Malachi chapter 3. This is the other portion of the quote, and I want you to see what, what Mark is pulling into the context here. This one is very different from Isaiah. This is not a promise of comfort, actually, at all. Look with me at Malachi 3 and verse 1. You'll recognize the language here. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But look at verse 2. This is not a promise of comfort when the Lord comes. Look at this promise. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And he continues on there. But this sounds like a promise of judgment when God shows up. Who can endure the day of his coming? Sounds like he's going to bring judgment on the sins of the people. So, go back to Mark. Mark quotes both of those passages, one promising comfort, one expecting judgment to happen. So, which one is it? When this messenger shows up and God follows him, what's it going to be? Comfort? Or judgment. One hopes in comfort, one expects judgment. Well, when Mark writes this, he views the people of Israel very much like Israel in the Old Testament. At this point, they are without God and they're in desperate need of Him. They're sort of wandering around. And so he promises that God's going to return to His people. But here's here's the kicker. It depends on whether God returns with comfort and restoration or judgment on how you respond to his return. That's what Mark is telling them here. Look, this event's going to happen, and it could be judgment or it could be comfort for you. And that's one of the themes that you're going to see throughout the book of Mark. You're going to see the word proclaimed to Israel, to God's people, and you're going to see Mark say and Jesus say, listen, it all depends on how you respond to that word. That's going to make all the difference as to whether it's comfort or judgment. How you respond appropriately to Christ's preaching makes all the difference. Listen to one of the most important passages in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 4, you can flip over there, just a couple of pages over. This is one of the key things that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4, verse 3 through verse 9. I'll read this to you. This is a famous parable, parable of the sower and the seed. But I want you to notice how Jesus begins and ends this parable. Okay? Listen. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 3. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. The birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. 
And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And then look how he ends this parable. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says in this parable, look, whether the seed of the word produces fruit in your heart depends on what kind of soil is in your heart. And how do you know what kind of soil is in your heart? Listen to the word. He who has ears to hear, listen to what is being said to you. And that's the question that Mark would throw out here. God is returning. So how will you respond? How will you How will we respond to the vision of Jesus Christ, of his person and work that we get in the book of Mark? As we study through the book of Mark, various portions of it, how will you respond to this picture of Jesus Christ, of his person, of who he is? It makes all the difference in the world. Listen to what the author of Hebrews said. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So he spoke by his son, who is better than angels, who's better than Moses. The author of Hebrews goes on to explain this. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 2, and look what he says. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received the just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? When was the last time that you allowed God's word to get deep into your heart and absolutely rearrange the furniture in there. When was the last time that happened? I mean, it's so easy just to come to worship every week, to read your Bible, but to not listen to what God is saying and to who he is. If the creator of the universe has spoken to us through his son, then from time to time... That word ought to highlight our sinful tendencies. It ought to get in there and make such an obvious difference in our lives that we have no other option but to flee to Jesus Christ and to listen to his word. Does that happen to you? Do you listen to the word in that way? The Gospel of Mark is going to present to us a picture of Christ, a vision of Christ, and it's all about how we respond to that picture. Just like Jesus said in the parable of the sower and the seed, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are your ears tuned to hear God's word, specifically to hear what God is saying about his son and through his son? Are you tuned with humility with an attitude that comes with open hands and says, I want to hear. I want the furniture to be rearranged. I want to think differently. I want to feel differently. I want to grow to be a different person through my encounter with Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. 
Is that where you're at this morning? That's where Mark would say the people of Israel needed to be. God is returning. The fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises is good news if you receive the returning king with open arms. But if you go back to Mark chapter 1, the nation of Israel wasn't there. (laughs) They weren't ready, all of them, to receive the king with open arms. They weren't in a mindset to welcome him into their midst. And because of that, that's exactly why God sent this messenger who is predicted in verses 2 and 3, who is predicted in Isaiah and in Malachi. He sent this messenger to prepare the way for his return. And that brings us to the second message that we're going to see this morning that introduces the good news of fulfillment. Pretty simple. God is returning. Get ready. (laughs) Which is an appropriate call when you know that God is returning to your midst. God is returning in verses 2 and 3. Get ready in verses 4 to 8. And so one of the ways that the people of Israel would know that God was going to be among them again was this messenger who was predicted by the Old Testament that we've read about in Isaiah and Malachi. And he would prepare the way for the Lord. So Mark tells us this is going to happen in verses 2 and 3. And then you get to verse 4 and Mark says, okay, this is happening. Look how he begins verse 4. John appeared. (laughs) Very simply, hey, look, this messenger is going to come. John appeared. There he is. And I want you to notice something about John and specifically about where he is doing his ministry. Look at verse 4. John appeared baptizing where? In the wilderness. Why is this significant at this particular time in Israel's history And at this particular point in God's plan of redemption, I think it is important and it is significant. Think back over the Old Testament to where, to what things have happened in the wilderness. Well, you know that one of the the most important things that happened in the wilderness was that God led Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And when they were brought into the wilderness there, they met with God. They became a nation. It was a very formative time for the people of Israel. And so John here is essentially rejecting the Jerusalem temple religious leader complex. And he's going out into the wilderness and he's calling to the nation of Israel saying, look, we need to go back to our roots Don't trust in the temple. Don't trust in these religious leaders. Instead, let's go back to our roots. Let's meet with God again in the wilderness. It's like John is putting them in a position where all they can do is trust in God to provide for them and ultimately to get them into the promised land where they need to go. And it's fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are many, many times in the prophets where the prophets expect Israel to return to the wilderness before this restoration happens. So they, they look forward and they say, yes, a restoration's going to come. God's going to return to his people. But before that happens, Israel's actually going to go out into the wilderness, just like they did in the Exodus. And I want to read you one of those passages There's many of them, but in Hosea chapter 2, if you want to flip over there, you're welcome to. If not, I think it'll be clear enough just me reading it to you. Listen to this. This is, obviously, Israel has been 
uh, given over to idolatry and sin. And God speaks to the nation of Israel. And listen to what he says. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. God speaking tenderly to the nation of Israel. And look what he says. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And then listen to this. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. The prophets say, man, we got to go back to what it was like when we were receiving the word of God, even if it was just for a little while in the wilderness, because things went awry pretty quickly. We have to go back to that. And we have to dwell with God in his presence. That's where we want to be. And that's what the prophets expected to happen. And look what he says in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal or Baal. For I will remove the names of the gods, Baals, from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by my by name no more. And then down in verse 20, look what God says. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so there's this expectation that Israel is going to go out into the wilderness. They're going to meet with God, and they're going to return to him. And that's why you find John out in the wilderness calling the people to come to him. Now, he's out in the wilderness, and he's very much like a prophet. Look down at verse 6. His clothing is described here, and it's very very much, uh, it's prophet-esque, let's say. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. Kind of an odd dude, but most prophets were odd dudes. Sort of reminiscent of Elijah in particular, which Mark will actually call him Elijah later on. So John functions as a prophet here. What do prophets do in the Old Testament? They call the people to God and they give them their word and they call them to respond to that word. Prophets receive a message from the Lord and they preach that message to God's people. That's what they do. They pass the message along. So what was John's prophetic message? We'll look back in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's preaching and he's calling people to repentance. He's telling them of God's return. He's saying, look, God is returning to his people. You need to be ready to receive him so that it's comfort and not judgment. The heart of John's message here, you can see, is one of repentance. And certainly he was proclaiming baptism, and the baptism wasn't something that saved the people, but it was a way of demonstrating that they wanted to be a part of the remnant of God's people. They wanted to identify with the work that God was doing. They wanted to be amongst his people. But the heart of his message was repentance. What is what is repentance? You hear that word sometimes, but what really is it? You can see in verse 4, it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You can see in verse 5 at the end there, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so repentance obviously has to do with, with sin. Well, Jewish people were notorious 
for trusting in their Jewishness to save them. I mean, they had this thing, you could see it in the Old Testament, where they relied on their connection to the temple. They relied on the religious leaders in Israel. They thought all of that would earn them favor with God. They thought, well, I can act however I want. I can do basically what I want because I'm a Jew and because I have a connection to the temple and I listen to the religious leaders teach. And so John is coming along and he's saying, no, to be a part of God's remnant, a part of God's people, that's not enough. That's not what you need. John is calling them to to reorganize the sinful bent of their heart, to recognize it, to turn from that sin and turn to God and recognize that he was coming. What is repentance? The, The simplest way I can explain it is, if you're walking down the street this way, Going in this direction, repentance is sort of disavowing that direction, turning 180 degrees and going the opposite direction. That is repentance. It's turning from sin and turning to God. And so John was calling the people, don't trust in your status as Jews anymore. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your supposed goodness. Don't think that God made a covenant with Israel and so, hey, you're good. You don't need to do anything. Instead, renounce your sin, humbly come to God and trust in him and be prepared for his arrival. And honestly, it looks like people were responding to this message. Look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Looks like people were were responding, not everyone, but a lot of people were responding. But John's message wasn't just about repentance. It wasn't just about a call to renounce your sins. Because that call to renounce your sins has to be connected to the coming of the Lord. It's not just about, hey, I want to be a good person now, so I'm not going to do these sins anymore. John was calling them to prepare for the arrival of one who was coming. Look at verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John's preaching was focused on a person. Now he says in here that one is coming who's mightier than he is. Is he talking about physical strength? There's a guy coming who can sort of beat me at arm wrestling. Well, no, obviously you know the answer. That's not what John is focused on. What what did he mean when he said he's mightier than I am? Look at verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Quite a difference there. John was calling the people to repentance, and they identified that repentance publicly by being baptized, by saying, I want to be identified with God's people, with the remnant of his people. That's what John was doing with water, but the one who was coming would do something much more dramatic. It wasn't just a baptism with water. He would baptize or immerse people in the Holy Spirit. Now, when you read that, maybe you've read it so many times that that just doesn't pop off the page to you. Maybe you just sort of read it and you're like, 
I mean, this is the way I looked at it at the beginning of this week, you know. Oh, it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, of course, the Holy Spirit comes, right? He's the third member of the Trinity. And so you read that there, and it doesn't make a big impact on us. But for John to say that one was coming who would be able to impart the Holy Spirit to people was absolutely stunning. And it indicated that something huge and dramatic was about to go down in the nation of Israel. Why was it so important that John said that Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit? Well, there are three reasons why, and I want to give those to you very quickly. Go back into your Old Testament, read back, and you'll see that being endowed with the Holy Spirit was something unique and special in the Old Testament. Not everyone received the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Your average Joe did not have the indwelling Spirit in the Old Testament. The Spirit would come upon certain individuals and would empower them for service, for some great feat of strength, to rescue the nation of Israel. There was a particular task that judges and kings had, and God would send the Holy Spirit to them for a particular time to empower them. And so if you're familiar with your Old Testament and you're reading back or you're hearing John say this and you're thinking, okay, David got the Holy Spirit, (laughs) you know, Samson got the Holy Spirit to do this particular task or, you know, Elijah got the Holy Spirit and these different things happened to these men and it was dramatic when the Spirit came upon them. When you're thinking about that and John's saying, okay, someone's coming who's going to immerse people in the Holy Spirit. Wow. This is going to be quite a guy who's coming to us. And that's just one reason why the Holy Spirit immersing people through the coming one was a big deal. The second, the arrival of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament indicated that God's plan of redemption, his kingdom, was about to arrive. It indicated that the end times were upon the people. There's so many passages that talk about this, but I want to just give you a few that are familiar to you. Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The coming of the spirit was significant, and it indicated that the new covenant was upon the people. Another passage, Isaiah 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That's in that whole passage that talks about comfort coming to Israel. And then Joel 2 And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So there's this expectation that when this happens, it's the end. It's the coming of God's rule and reign. All sorts of good things are going to happen when the spirit is poured out. So the last thing, there's, there's three reasons why this matters. One is the Holy Spirit empowered particular individuals in the Old Testament. One is that another, the second one is that the Holy Spirit um, 
dealt specifically the arrival of the Spirit with God's kingdom. And then lastly, and maybe most significantly, only God could impart the Holy Spirit. This wasn't something that you just sort of conjured up and received. You didn't get the power of the Spirit on your own through your own goodness. This was something that God did. The work of the Spirit was mysterious, was unexpected. And then for John to say that this coming individual could at will baptize people in the Holy Spirit would have been shocking for those who were listening. Who could do this? Who could make something like this happen? Only God could do this. And so all of this, in verses 4 to 8, John, who he was, what he was preaching, what he was proclaiming about the Spirit, about repentance, all of this told the people, God's returning, get ready. He's coming. And so as we close here for just a minute, I want to take a little bit of time, and I want to think about the implications of this for our own lives. This passage presents us with a very clear expectation that God's arrival was imminent for those living in Israel during this time. God's coming. Mark is not announcing, John the Baptist is not announcing that Caesar was going to arrive, right? He was announcing that God Almighty was going to show up and begin to work again in the nation of Israel. And the difference between Caesar showing up and God Almighty showing up makes all the difference. The identity of the one who was coming mattered very much. The identity of the one coming mattered so much that people were called to repent of their sins. You had to take dramatic action in order to get ready for the arrival of this one. So John the Baptist would say, Mark would say, if Jesus Christ is truly God, if he's who he says he is, then his claims on our lives are dramatic and our lives must be radically altered, different. So we're going to study through the Gospel of Mark in several different series. But if you had to boil the whole Gospel of Mark down to sort of two main messages, here's my attempt to do that, right? This is what Mark is going to convey to us from 30,000 feet. He's going to say in the first part of the book, this is who Jesus is. This is his identity. And he's going to slowly unfold to the disciples, to the religious leaders, and to us as the readers, this is who you're dealing with here. He's telling us here, as those who are reading it, this is who's coming. And then he's going to unfold that for the first part of the book. And then the natural result of that identity is you have to respond by becoming his disciple and following him. If he's who he says he is, there are obligations on your life, joyful obligations, but obligations nonetheless. So the first half of Mark builds up to this identity of Christ. And then you get to chapter 8 and verse 27. And I want you to turn over there. As we finish up this morning, and this is kind of the climax of the book here. This is that pinnacle of the book. Chapter 8, verse 27. This is where these two themes that we've seen this morning, the two themes on the screen here, God is returning, get ready. This is where these two themes come together. His identity and your response to his identity, all right? Verse 27. 
Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Right? After all this explanation, Jesus wants to know, okay, guys, who are people saying that I am? What's the response been? What are they believing? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So you get a very clear statement of Christ's identity. And then verse 31 gives us the ultimate goal. Because of who he is, this is what he has to do. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And then, of course, you know, Peter, not fully there yet, doesn't quite get it all the way, that the king, the returning God, has to suffer to save his people. Look at verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, there is a response that recognizes that he has to go to the cross and then personally responds to his identity in verse 34. Look what Jesus says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, I'm going to the cross. If anyone would be my disciple, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's our response. If he's who he says he is, if he has to go to the cross, and if we want to be his disciples, if we want to be ready for his return, this is our response to him. So how can you... Take up your cross this week. And the amazing thing about this is you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you follow him, and then what does it say that you get? You get true life. You get your soul in return. You get a joyful life of following him. So let me ask you, how can you let your life be shaped by the sacrifice of Christ this week? How can you give of yourself in little ways and big ways for the good of others? Think about who Christ is afresh. Let the identity of this one who we're going to study and read about, let his identity forcibly remove self from the center. Because that's how we all tend to live, isn't it? I am at the center of the universe. I am the center of the world. Let Christ's identity remove you from the throne and put him on the throne this week. Because he's the fulfillment of the whole story anyway. All the way back to the beginning. He's the one that completes the story. He's the center. He's the climax. He's the crux. And it makes all the difference how you respond 
to him and his identity. He's coming. Get ready. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this picture of Christ. We're thankful that he is the the completion of the Old Testament story. He's the promised one. We're so thankful that he did return and fulfilled these promises to his people, Lord. We're thankful that you did not leave your people wallowing in their sins, but you sent Christ in order to save, to renew, and to restore. I pray that even this week you would help us to live in light of that. I pray that you would help us to deny self and to respond to Christ's identity by putting him at the very center of our lives. Give us the grace, give us the wisdom to do that this coming week, Lord. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.